This message was presented at the GYC 2014 conference at the Cross in Phoenix, Arizona. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. Good afternoon. It's good to be together again, and the title for this uh, service may be a little different than what you're looking at in the bulletin, but I'm going to deal now with how God dealt with my pride and selfishness, self-righteousness. It was through the desire of ages and personal experience that God taught me to understand Minneapolis principles, and that's what you have in your in, in your booklet there. It, the purpose of the Minneapolis message was to humble in the dust the glory of man. In order for me to understand the Minneapolis principles, I needed to be humbled in the dust. And I'm going to be sharing with you uh, how God led me to Minneapolis principles before I knew anything about Minneapolis. And uh, we, first of all, I want to share with you what the essence of the Minneapolis message was. The, the message of Minneapolis can be stated in different ways. One, to focus on Christ crucified, and that is a very central issue. The other is to unite the principles of grace and law, of faith and obedience. This was the also central to the Minneapolis message. And without a focus upon Christ, our sacrifice, Christ our righteousness, we will not be able to bring these principles together. And this is the main issue that we'll be discussing now. It was while I was in Merced, California, a young man of 15 years of age, when God had given me victory over many things and had blessed me. And I found myself one day asking myself, what more should I do? What lack I yet? Now, what, what more do I need to do? And I heard a voice. It was that voice of Christ that had spoken to me before. And the voice simply said, you are in danger. I didn't know what my danger was. But it was in that moment that I was first became aware of a danger of some kind. I would have to learn what that danger was later. A few years later, when I was at Madison College, I was sharing my testimony of what God had done for me. And I don't know exactly what I said, but the party that I was talking to made a statement that made a deep impression on my mind. He says, don't be too self-confident. Well, uh, apparently whatever I was sharing with him I stated in a way that sounded quite self-confident. And of course, I was feeling confident in Christ, but that's not self-confident. Whatever I said probably led him to think of my statement as self-confidence. The fact is, I didn't understand either one as to what was really meant, but they stayed in my mind. I later that year moved back home to Pacific Union College and was attending school there. And during that period of time, I was suffering spiritual defeat. I wasn't sure why, but I was suffering spiritual defeat and was begging God to to help me. The fact is, I was making my promises to God when I would fail And I would say, Lord, please forgive me. If you forgive me this, this once more, I'll never do it again. Now, that's a very poor thing to say to God. 
what I will not do if he forgives me. The fact is that he's willing to forgive me. He's eager to forgive me. But it is not for me to say I will never do it again. I can say by your grace I will overcome the next time. But I cannot say that I will never do it again because I have no capacity for not doing it again except in him. He is my source of strength. So I continued to make my promises to God instead of claiming his promises to me. Now you'll see that I'm having to learn the same lesson over and over again. As a matter of fact, one of the most important things about the Minneapolis message is to understand that we are always corrupt in ourselves. What I am in myself will never be accepted by God, no matter how hard I try. But what I am in Christ is always accepted by God. When I claim his promises by faith, then I can rest assured that he accepts me and that he will give me the victories that I need. But I cannot make those victories possible. Only he can do it. I was, about this time, the Lord spoke to me again and indicated that pride would be my lifelong challenge. And uh, I was probably by this time, uh, was 18 years of age probably. And I knew that the voice of God had spoken to me that this would be my test and my challenge. When I first began preaching, the Lord blessed me in a special way because I was somehow able to think with the congregation and uh, preaching was a, a delight. Then I preached at Grandview. <laughs> and at Grandview, I felt like every minute I was having to carve out what I was going to say. Before it flowed, I, had, I was being directed by the Holy Spirit and my mind was clear and now I'm having to figure out what I'm going to say next. And that is a very painful process, especially for one who's had the privilege of speaking and thinking as, as I speak and, uh, and having the blessing of the Lord upon that. By the time I finished, I was finished. <laughs> and when I walked out of the Grandview Church, I greeted the people, and they were always kind to young interns, or I shouldn't say interns, I mean college students. And so the people were very kind to me in, in their greetings as I left, but I was not able to accept any of those greetings because I felt that I was a failure. Now, the fact is that that was a very important experience to me. Uh, it takes a long time to learn the most important lessons. And the most important lesson is that we are unable to do anything without God's help. That we are totally dependent upon him for whatever blessings he might place upon us. And when we depend upon ourselves, we're depending on futility. It was a blessing to me to go through that experience because for many days, actually for a number of weeks, I was uh, feeling very helpless. And that's where God wants us to be. When we feel confident and assured, except as we're trusting in him, we're in a, in a poor place. So God saw fit to teach me point by point uh, the same lesson all over again, even though it may under, be as other circumstances. 
it was the same lesson I had to learn to begin with. Because for eight years, I tried my best to do God's will and failed. And uh, when I finally came to the place where I was willing to do anything and to depend fully upon him, he gave me the victory. And now again, I'm having to learn the same lesson. And I would say that probably the most important thing about Minneapolis is that we must keep two principles in mind. Number one is that we must see our own corruption. Number two, we must focus on his righteousness. But we must recognize our own corruption in order to achieve and to, to prize his righteousness. And only as I am as sensitive to my own weakness am I going to claim his strength. This is a vital principle that I uh, was learning, a principle that I would discover in the Minneapolis message, though I still as that yet did not know about the Minneapolis message. <clears throat> Some years later, I was in my first pastorate. Actually, it was in my second pastorate. And early in that pastorate, and I was having worship one morning. And when I was reading from Christ's subject lesson, I read the chapter, The Two Worshippers. The Pharisee came up to the temple to worship. And he prayed, the scripture says, he prayed with himself saying, God. Now, you, you understand the, the problem there. He prayed with himself, saying, God, I'm so grateful that I'm not as other sinners. I'm not like this publican over here. The fact is, unless I see myself as the sinner, I won't go down justified. I've justified myself. And when I see myself as the sinner, then I have a right to the righteousness that I cannot have otherwise. And I recognize the need for Christ, our righteousness. This is the central principle of the Minneapolis message. So we have two things that we need to keep together. Our uncleanness, his righteousness. And when we do that, we claim his righteousness in truth and honesty. And we receive what? The Christ Object Lessons, uh, I'm reading from page 152. The Pharisee and the publican represent two great classes into which those who come to worship God are divided. The first two representatives are found in the first two children that were born into the world. Cain thought himself righteous. And he came to God with a thank offering only. He made no confession of sin and acknowledged no need of mercy. But Abel came with the blood that pointed to the Lamb of God. He came as a sinner, confessing himself lost. His only hope was the unmerited love of God. The Lord had respect to his offering. But to Cain and his offering, he had no respect. The sense of need, the recognition of our poverty and sin is the very first condition of our acceptance with God. And so instead of feeling dismay and feeling hopeless, when we have a sense of guilt, we should be grateful because God is by guilt drawing us to his righteousness, to seek and receive his righteousness. The Lord had respect to his offering, that is Abel's offering, but to Cain and his offering, he had no respect. The sense of need, the recognition of our poverty and sin is the very first condition of acceptance with God. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Each, for each of the classes represented by the Pharisee and the publican, there is a lesson 
in the history of the Apostle Peter. In his early discipleship, Peter thought himself strong. Like the Pharisee, in his own estimation, he was not as other men. When Christ, on the eve of his betrayal, forewarned his disciples, all you shall be offended. Because of me this night, Peter confidently declared, although all should be offended, yet will not I. Peter did not know his own danger. Self-confidence misled him. But in a few short hours, the test came, and with cursing and swearing, he denied his Lord. When the crowing of the cock reminded him of the words of Christ, surprised and shocked at what he had just done, he turned and looked to his master. At that moment, Christ looked at Peter, and beneath that grieved look, in which compassion and love for him were blended, in which uh, Peter understood himself. He went out and wept bitterly. That, Christ, that look of Christ broke his heart. Peter had come to the turning point, and bitterly did he repent of his sin. He was like the publican in his contrition and repentance, and like the publican, he found mercy. The look of Christ assured him of pardon. This was a very important principle that I was reading that morning. As I read from paragraph to paragraph, the conviction came to me more and more that I needed a deeper sense of repentance. I needed a greater sense of my need. Now his self-confidence was gone. Never again were the old boastful assertions repeated. Christ, after his resurrection, thrice tested Peter. Lovest thou me more than these? Peter did not now exalt himself above his brethren. He appealed to the one who could read the heart, Lord, he said, you know all things. You know that I love you. Then he received his commission, a work broader and more delicate than he had hitherto been his, was appointed him. Christ bade him feed the sheep and the lambs. In this committing to his, uh, and thus committing to his uh, stewardship the souls for whom the Savior had laid down his life. Christ gave to Peter the strongest proof of confidence in his, uh, in his stewardship. Pardon me. Confidence in his restoration. The once restless, boastful, self-confident disciple had become subdued and contrite. Henceforth, he followed his Lord in self-denial and self-sacrifice. He was a partaker of Christ's sufferings, and when Christ shall sit upon the throne of his glory, Peter shall be a partaker of his glory. As I read these passages, the thought came to my mind, I do not have sufficient sense of my need, and therefore I have not an adequate sense of repentance. The evil that led to Peter's fall and that shut him, shut out the Pharisee from communion with God is brewing the ruin of thousands today. There is nothing so offensive to God or so dangerous to the human soul as pride and self-sufficiency. Of all sins, it is the most hopeless, the most incurable. Peter's fall was not instantaneous, but gradual. Self-confidence led him to the belief that he was saved. And step after step was taken in the downward path until he could deny his master. Never can we safely put confidence in self or feel this side of heaven that we are secure against temptation. Those who accept the Savior, however sincere their conversion, 
should never be taught to say or to feel that they are saved. This, by the way, is a statement that is often used and confused because it has a meaning, a specific meaning. We are not to say we are saved in the sense that we feel secure against temptation. You see, the issue that Ellen White was dealing with was the issue of self, uh, of uh, once saved, always saved. So that a person could say, well, I'm saved, which means that I'm already past my period of temptation. And uh, <clears throat> said, everyone should be taught to cherish hope and faith. But even when we give ourselves to Christ and know that he accepts us, we are not beyond the reach of temptation. God's word declares many shall be purified and made white and tried. Daniel 12, 10. Not only he who, who endures the trial will receive the crown of life. So as I read these things, I felt more and more keenly the need for greater sense of repentance. And I read again from 155, it was necessary for Peter to learn his own defects of character and his need of the power and grace of Christ. The Lord could not save him from trial, but he could have saved him from defeat. God does not save us from trials. It's through trials that he perfects our character. And we need to learn how to face every trial with gratitude, praising God for what he plans to do through us and in us. Because it is through these trials that God perfects our character. Had Peter been willing to receive Christ's warning, he would have been watching into prayer. He would have walked with fear and trembling and lest his feet should stumble. And he would be, have received divine help so that Satan could not have gained the victory. So God can and will give us victory. But if we are confident in any other thing but, him, but his strength and his righteousness, we're doomed to defeat. There is no way for us to, uh, to uh, uh, break loose from the power of the enemy who has bound us to our habits and so forth. It was through self-sufficiency that Peter fell. It was through repentance and humiliation that his feet were again established. In the record of his experience, every repenting soul, sinner, may find encouragement. Though Peter had grievously sinned, he was not forsaken. The words of Christ were written upon his soul, I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not. In his bitter agony of remorse, Sorry. In his bitter agony of remorse is this prayer and the memory of Christ's look of love and pity gave him hope. Christ, after his resurrection, remembered Peter and gave the angel the message for the women. Go your way and tell the disciples and Peter that he goes before you to Galilee. There, there you shall see him. Peter's repentance was accepted by the sin-pardoning Savior. So Peter found his strength in his own defeat because it was as a person who thought he could stand and had failed that he was led to trust Christ rather than trusting in himself. But we must have a knowledge of ourselves a knowledge that will result in contrition before we can find pardon and peace. The Pharisee felt no conviction of sin. The Holy Spirit could not work with him. His soul was encased in a self-righteous armor 
which the arrows of God, barbed and true, aimed by angel hands, failed to penetrate. It is only he who knows himself a sinner that Christ can save. Jesus said, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And only when we see ourselves as one of those sinners can we receive his help. He came to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives. And how greatly I did need deliverance. Recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised. But they that are whole need not a physician. We must know our real condition, or we shall not feel our need of Christ's help. We must understand our danger or we will not flee to the refuge. We must feel the pain of our wounds or we shall not desire healing. And so it is that we must undergo defeat in order that we may be led to a repentance that will permit God to guide us Otherwise, we instinctively seek to guide ourselves. No man can understand his errors. The heart is deceitful above all things. The lips may express a poverty of soul that the heart does not acknowledge. While speaking to God of poverty of spirit, the heart may be swelling with the conceit of its own superior humility and exalted righteousness. In one way only can a true knowledge of self be obtained. We must behold Christ. And what God was trying to do to help me is to keep my eyes focused upon Christ, not myself. When we're focusing on ourselves, we may and have been doing fairly well, we may feel very self-confident. But God will allow that self-confidence to be removed by our own failure. It is God who brings us to our senses by permitting us to stumble and fall. And that as I was having this difficulty of sinning again and again and repenting and asking God forgiveness, what I needed was to keep my eyes fixed on Christ as my righteousness. We shall see ourselves lost and hopeless, clad in garments of self-righteousness, like every other sinner. Here I am a pastor now, and yet I have to see myself not as a pastor, but as a sinner. In order to minister to other sinners, I must do so realizing that my of uh, 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 my own uncleanness, I cannot even minister to anyone else without his grace. I, I am being like every other sinner. We shall see that if we are ever saved, it will be through, it will not be through our own goodness, but through God's infinite grace. It is not only at the beginning of our Christian life that this renunciation of self is to be made. At every step heavenward, it is to be renewed. All our good works are dependent on a power outside ourselves. Therefore, there needs to be a continual reaching out of the heart after God, a continual, earnest, heartbreaking confession of sin and humbling of the soul before him. Only by constant renunciation of self and dependence on Christ can we walk safely. Now, what did I need? I needed a sense of my own uncleanness. We cannot repent to any greater extent than we sense our need. And if we think of ourselves as being well, in a different category than our people, and I'm speaking now as a pastor, 
unless we sense our own need along with the, that of our members, unless we see ourselves as unclean, we're not going to depend upon Christ for a cleanness which we assume we have. And so it is that God, in his wonderful goodness and his great love, allows us to fail. I am so grateful for this principle of God. I'm not glad I've failed, but I'm grateful for the failure because it is a very difficult thing for a person to continue a, a depth of repentance every day, not only at the beginning of our Christian life, but at every advanced step we must repent. Now, how can you truly repent? This was my question that morning. I was in my devotion. My question, how can I repent? I can't force myself to repent. I can't just tell myself, well, I want to repent. I must have a sense of my need. But how do I have a sense of my need? I was, this was a lesson that God was preparing to teach me. And as I left that morning to minister to people in the nearby where I lived, uh, I found myself extremely busy, involved in even some of the visits that I made, I still remember. And I was so pressed for, uh, in other words, I was so involved with ministry that I forgot about the time. And when I finally looked at my watch, I realized that lunchtime had passed some time before, and it was now time for me to be in Tenasket, 17 miles away. I was to have a study with Sister Heath. Sister Heath was a very special woman. Uh, she was a lady that I had privilege of studying the scriptures with, who had been a Sunday school teacher for 40 years. She was a Baptist Sunday school teacher and a very godly woman. And as I started out in my car, I had no time. I was wishing I had time for devotion then because I was beginning to sense a, a great sense of need. As I started driving toward Tenasket, I felt desperate because I, as I had not for a long time had that same intensity of sense of uncleanness. I felt that I really needed to, to, uh, to do something to, to be cleansed. But you know, it's not something we do to be cleansed. It's something we receive. It's the righteousness of Christ. And as I was driving along, I was impressed to take my Bible out of the case now, this is not a practice that I'm advising, but it was my experience. The Lord impressed me to take my Bible out of my case and open it up, and here I am driving. But I glanced down, and uh, as I did so, I, uh, I read this. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, when the house of Israel lived in their own land, they defiled it by their ways and their deeds. Now, this is not talking about some wicked things, but their ways rather than my ways. Then their ways before me were like the uncleanness of a woman in her menstrual impurity. So I poured out my wrath upon them for the blood that they had shed in the land and for the idols with which they had defiled it. I scattered them among the nations, and they were dispersed through the countries. In accordance with their ways and their deeds, I judged them. Somehow I sensed that this was the verse that I needed. Son of man, when the house of Israel dwelt in their own land, when everything was going smoothly for them, they defiled it by their own ways and by their own doings, which were not good. But then I glanced back again at the scripture. I would read just a little bit and then drive for a while. And this is the next verse I found. 
I will sprinkle clean water upon you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit will I put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful, uh, pardon me, and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I give your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God, and I will deliver you from all your what? Uncleanness. Brothers and sisters, it is not sin that threatens us. It's uncleanness. Now you say, what's the difference? Well, uncleanness is a state. When you sin, you, you do something. And the fact is that Christ died for all our sins. And all we have to do to be forgiven is to confess honestly and claim his righteousness. But our uncleanness is the great threat because it means that, that our minds are centered on self. It means that pride and independence, self-confidence are ruling. This is the source of uncleanness. And as I read those, uh, that passage, my heart rejoiced because I knew God was speaking to me through his word. And he was telling me that even though I was in danger, see, my concern was if I went to study the Bible with, with Sister Heath, that I would actually uh, cause his word to be disreputed because of my own uncleanness. And now I'm assured by God's word that he will give me a new heart and so forth. So as I drove along, my spirits picked up greatly and uh, I drove with confidence. And then it says you will, after this, then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good. Even when God cleanses us, we still have a selfish nature. And we will remember that this is what we are in ourselves. And I'd like to speak to that just for a moment. Unless I see myself as I am in myself, I will not be able to see what I am in him. When I see myself and acknowledge my uncleanness, then I have the privilege of claiming his righteousness. But it is the necessity on God's part to allow us to see our uncleanness in some way or another. And he allows us to fail so that we can succeed. We cannot, cannot succeed unless we recognize our need, our continual need, our, our need uh, continually. So it says, it is, your, it is uh, not for your sake that I will act, declares the Lord God. Let it be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. Now, what he's telling me at this point is that he is giving me his righteousness to cleanse me from my uncleanness. But he's reminding me that it's not because of my goodness. It's not because of what I'm doing. It is because I'm turning to him in dependence and claiming his righteousness. And uh, young folk, it is extremely important that we learn how to live in the light of Christ's righteousness. But that requires a sense of what we are in ourselves. Now, there's been a conflict within the church for many, many decades now, uh, which was especially stimulated by Questions on Doctrines, a book, uh, but has continued. 
between those who insist that we must be perfect before Christ comes and those who insist that we must, that we will sin until Christ comes. The fact is that both positions represent some truth and both positions are incorrect. So it is not a matter of one or the other. The fact is that the only way I receive Christ's righteousness is recognizing my own corruption. And that is mine by nature. And that will be there until Christ comes. Therefore, whatever perfection in, involves is not the perfection of nature. It's ex perfection of experience. God has promised us victory. We can have victory. And by claiming his promises, we will have victory. But we will still have a selfish nature to deal with. And that means that we will need continual cleansing. Cleansing of the uncleanness of self-righteousness. The uncleanness of self-centeredness. This is what God promises us. But we only receive this as we trust in him. It's only as we recognize our uncleanness that we can be cleansed from all of our righteousness. And I would like to speak one word further about the question of perfection. It is not our perfection that will pass us through the judgment. We do not have to be perfect to be saved. We have to have his perfection to be saved. As soon as I claim his perfection, I am seen by the Father as having that perfection myself. He gives me his perfection and it is through confidence in his perfection that I face the judgment. As a boy, before I began to learn some of these principles, I kept thinking that I must become perfect, but I can't. I can receive his perfect perfection. I can be perfect in him, which means that his perfection, his righteousness is accepted by God as mine. But I cannot perfect myself. And even as I seek to perfect myself, I am focusing on what? Myself. And this will keep me from ever becoming perfect. What has been a great blessing to me is to know that his perfection is what I need and that I can claim that daily. But in order to claim it honestly, I must be repentant. And in order to be repentant, I must see my need for repentance. And so it is that God led me step by step to some very important principles. And I must say that the lessons that I've learned in life have been primarily learned through defeat. But a defeat which I have refused to give in to, therefore I've continued to look to him, even though I didn't understand the process, I was still driven by the Holy Spirit through a sense of guilt to look to Christ as my only hope. And I would say this, this afternoon as we gathered here, that God wants us to have a consciousness that we are saved, but not to be talking about our having been saved as though we are now through the process and we have once saved, always saved assurance. He wants us to be constantly aware of our own uncleanness. I have an uncleanness by nature that I cannot deal with. I cannot do anything but trust him. And it is because I know that I cannot, that I am able when I fail to turn immediately to him and claim his righteousness because that's what I needed all the time. He intends to give me his righteousness 
not merely in books of record, but he gives me his righteousness by giving me himself. It is his righteousness all the time, but I may experience it in him. And I cannot experience it unless he is in me and I in him. This is the key to victory. And the reason why God gave me an hour every morning and an every hour every evening, which would test me because of the strenuous effort, you know, to keep awake and, and so forth. But the reason why was I needed to spend time in his presence. Looking into Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. It is Christ that assures me of victory. But it is in him that I gain the victory, not outside of him. And the real issue of Minneapolis is that our focus must be upon Christ crucified. Not just Christ, because there are many Christs. The Bible teaches us that. There are many theories of Christ that are false. There's only one true Christ, and he is the one who died for me, who already took care of my sins. It's as though I had a huge uh, mortgage to pay, and somebody has paid it all off. Christ has paid my mortgage that which I owed. But that is the easy part. He has already done it. By the way, it wasn't easy for him. But, it, but the easy part is to receive forgiveness. God is always eager to forgive. But what he wants to do is to give me himself. To receive Christ's righteousness is to receive Christ himself and to commune with him, and to, uh, and to spend our time thinking on his word. And I would like to just say as we conclude this ser uh, service this, uh, this afternoon, that my hope and prayer is that every one of you will sense guilt. A guilt that will drive you to Jesus who is your righteousness, the only righteousness that will ever pass you through the judgment is the righteousness of Christ, which you have the right to claim, but you have no right to claim it dishonestly. When you claim his righteousness, it must mean that you do want his righteousness. And if you want his righteousness, you're not going to find excuses to disobey. His righteousness is his obedience, his perfection of character. And when you claim his righteousness, if you have not that already, that sense of great need, ask him for it. Now, I would like to conclude this service by telling you the rest of the story. As I traveled to Tenasket and arrived there, I, was, I arrived there in faith that God had promised to remove my uncleanness and to prevent my own uncleanness from harming her spiritual relationship with God. That was one of the best Bible studies I've ever had. Why? Because I sensed, as I was studying with her, I sensed my own unrighteousness, but my focus was on his righteousness. Therefore, I was not trusting my righteousness. I was trusting his righteousness. I knew as I studied the Bible with her, except for the grace of God, she could be easily, she could be harmed by my study. And uh, as it was, I had the assurance of the, the law written in the heart and so forth. And so it was on this basis that I had the study with her. And that evening was prayer meeting evening. And as I held my prayer meeting at the Tenasket Church that night, I decided not to give the study that I was planning, but I shared this testimony. It was not until I had 
shared the testimony that I remembered what happened that morning. I was not aware that God was answering my prayer because that morning I asked God for that kind of repentance. Brothers and sisters, when you ask him for the righteousness of Christ, you are asking him for repentance. And if you don't understand that, then you will think that uh, God has failed to answer your prayer at the very time when he is answering it. He answered my prayer for greater repentance by allowing me to see my uncleanness. Now, I had not done anything that I knew of that caused me to feel unclean. I was not aware of disobeying anything. I was simply aware of an uncleanness. Now, what did I ask for? I asked for deepening repentance. Every day, one of the other quote, uh, statements in there, which I didn't get this one, and with these, every day our repentance must deepen. How can our repentance deepen? Only by a deeper understanding of our uncleanness. That's what leads to repentance. So, brothers and sisters, when the sense of guilt comes to you, a sense of uncleanness, you don't have to wait for a sense of guilt because you lied to somebody or you stole something or, you know, committed some obvious sin. God wants us to repent of our uncleanness. And our uncleanness is selfishness of any kind. And one of the things that God must give us in that is the gift of humility. Now, I am not naturally humble. As a matter of fact, it was my own pride that has caused me to understand these principles. I have to claim his, his gift of humility every morning. And I invite you to do the same. We are unclean before God, our minds and our hearts are in need of his righteousness. And that really means his presence. And we cannot receive that unless we're eager to do his will. And so when we pray for, for Christ's righteousness, we are praying also for his will to be seen and experienced in our lives. Shall we bow our heads? Father, thank you for your many blessings. Thank you for this privilege of discussing these important issues. And I pray that you will bless us now and uh, that you will guide and direct us in our own personal experience. In the name of Jesus, amen. This message was recorded at the GYC 2014 conference at The Cross in Phoenix, Arizona. GYC a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church seeks to inspire young people to be Bible-based, Christ-centered, and soul-winning Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org.